hppodcraft.com. Rolling. It was in one of the most open and least frequented parts of the broad Pacific that the packet, of which I was supercargo, fell a victim to the German Sea Raider. The Great War was then at its very beginning, and the ocean forces of the Hun had not completely sunk to their later degradation, so that our vessel was made a legitimate prize, whilst we of her crew were treated with all the fairness and consideration due us as naval prisoners. So liberal indeed was the discipline of our captors, that five days after we were taken I managed to escape alone in a small boat with water and provisions for a good length of time. All right, that was... Andrew Lehman reading the second paragraph of the H.P. Lovecraft story, <laughs> Dagon. The exciting second paragraph where things kick into high gear. Uh, I would like to introduce myself. I'm Chris Lackey. I am Chad Pfeiffer. And this is the H.P. Lovecraft Literary Podcast. You can find it at hppodcraft.com. Well, uh, Chad, I'm, we had skipped a week. Yeah, um, so you are uh, you were traveling. I was traveling in England. How was England? I hear that's where they keep history. They do. There is a lot of history in England, let me tell you. Uh, <laughs> I should uh, mention that, that we are broadcasting from Santa Monica, California. Yes. I don't know if we've said that before, but uh, no, I don't we're a scant 20 blocks away from the Pacific Ocean. Don't, we, don't remind me. Yeah, we're <laughs> Andrew Lehman who read that opening bit and was kind enough to write, uh, read a few excerpts from the story for us today, uh, was the director of The Call of Cthulhu that we yeah, were Yeah, he is the in. director and the producer and co-writer of the upcoming uh, Whisperer in the Darkness. Yeah, they're uh, in the process of uh, pre-production right pre-production, now. Pre-production, Getting yeah. that thing together. Um, I think they have a, a diary about making the movie at their website right now. Yeah. Mm-hmm. CthulhuLives.org. So if you're interested in how that's going, I think it's going to be uh, pretty cool. Pretty cool. Pretty cool. So uh, I, I thought that that second paragraph was a good one to open up with because that's, you know, it's exciting. Yeah, it's pretty exciting. It's a, it's a war thing. And mm-hmm. it's a, when I read it, I thought, wow, that's, that's really the hero's journey. That's how it starts. You know, Joseph Campbell's hero's journey is where somebody has a sort of world that they're used to mm-hmm. and then they get knocked out of it and they, f- they find themselves in some new, strange, wonderful, magnificent or crazy or, or scary world and they mm-hmm. have to go through a series of trials. They learn something and then they bring it back to where they were from. Yeah. Um, anyway, as I was thinking about that, the book that he espouses that theory in is called uh, Hero of a Thousand Faces. And it made me laugh because it just sounds like a Lovecraft like monster. <laughs> it, right does. it does sound like that. <laughs> Let's well, talk yeah, about. Let's, uh, let's give us an Let's jump the into story. the story. Uh, the ver- the, it has a very typical Lovecraft opening. Yes, I am writing this under an appreciable mental strain, since by tonight I shall be no more, penniless and at the end of my supply of the drug which alone makes life endurable. I can bear the torture no longer, and shall cast myself from this garret window into the squalid street below. Do not think from my slavery to morphine that I am a weakling or a degenerate. When you have read these hastily scrawled pages, you may guess, though never fully realize, why it is that I must have forgetfulness or death. So, yes, uh, so this guy begins to, you know, he recounts a tale. He is a sailor on a ship, and uh, this is during World War I. Uh, his ship gets attacked by a, a German man of war. They're captured, but they're treated very fairly. And uh, the guards are very lax in their duty, so he's able to get a small dinghy and get load on a bunch of food and water and escape. Yeah, and then he's adrift, just out in the for, for, Pacific for Ocean. days. It gets worse because he falls asleep one night in the boat, and when he wakes up, <laughs> a landmass has risen to the surface, or there's this viscous kind of black material everywhere. The change happened whilst I slept. 
Its details I shall never know, for my slumber, though troubled and dream-infested, was continuous. When at last I awakened, it was to discover myself half-sucked into a slimy expanse of hellish black mire which extended about me in monotonous undulations as far as I could see, and in which my boat lay grounded some distance away. That's really scary. Yeah, that's really that's really scary. Yeah. So anyway, the guy hangs out in his boat, or, you know, like near the boat, he kind of uses it as a shelter from the sun for a few days, and the sun kind of starts drawing it out, and he thinks, okay, I'm going to, you know, start walking on this thing and see how big it is. He assumes that what actually happened, the reason that it's up there, is because there was some volcanic eruption. Yes. Through some unprecedented volcanic upheaval, a portion of the ocean floor must have been thrown to the surface, exposing regions which for innumerable millions of years had lain hidden under unfathomable watery depths. And uh, so it solidifies, and he starts taking a walk. He takes a walk, and he walks uh, for a few days. He comes to a large hill, and he is so tired from walking in the day, he goes to sleep. But he's awoken by nightmares, and then he feels like it's much cooler, and it's easier to walk at night than it is to walk during the day. So at right. night, he goes up this, this hill, mountain-ish type thing. He looks down and sees a large chasm. But the moonlight doesn't shine into it because the moon's too low. It's an abyss. In fact, I yeah. think he compares it to uh, the abyss that Satan climbs out of in Paradise Lost. Yes, he does. And and uh, I think he says it's the like the edge of the world, yeah. which was kind of a really cool uh, description of it. And there is a uh, a monolith. Right. Well, he yeah, it's, it's this valley, and he, he drops down into it and sort of on the opposite shore. Right? Yes. Because uh-huh. there's it's so deep, at some point there's water down in it. Yes, yes. And uh, on the other, on the opposite uh, sure, he sees this, mon- this large stone structure, which he assumes has just been washed up like everything else. Mm-hmm. The closer he gets to it, the more he realizes that it's something made. A cyclopean, even. Yeah, <laughs> it's the cyclopean structure. It has bizarre engravings of fish men, uh-huh. which he uh, makes a natural assumption that those are gods. One of them is as big as a, a whale. A whale. Yeah. yeah. Which kind of freaks him it's out. It's pretty freaky. Bit. So he's hanging out looking at that thing, and then... And then... Then suddenly I saw it. With only a slight churning to mark its rise to the surface, the thing slid into view above the dark waters. Vast, polyphemous-like, and loathsome, it darted like a stupendous monster of nightmares to the monolith, about which it flung its gigantic scaly arms, the while it bowed its hideous head and gave vent to certain measured sounds. I think I went mad then. That's I love that. That, that, that really short sentence. Yeah. I think I went mad. Then. <laughs> I think that was the moment. I think that was it. Uh, so basically, he just sees this gigantic fish man come up and hug the monolith, essentially, yeah. right? It just yeah. wraps its arms around it, and he loses his mind. Yeah, he goes back, tries. I think he tries, says he's trying to find his boat, but he's just. There's points he says he's laughing. Yeah. There's point he's just freaking totally lost his mind. But he passes out, wakes up in a hospital, mm-hmm. and they said, "Hey, buddy, we found you out on a boat. Uh, you're just out there floating in the middle of the ocean." He goes, "Well, what about?" What about this this mass, this big black icky mass that came up? And they're like, pal, we didn't see nothing. And he was like, what? I was this thing and there was this monster. And they're like, buddy, you're you're total nuts. And that's that's what they said to him. I'm paraphrasing, mind you. And uh, yeah, he actually, he goes to talk to some uh, archaeologists or something as well. And yes, that guy doesn't yeah. believe him either. It's uh, No, no, no. He starts snooping around trying to figure out what's up. And he mentions Dagon who is, uh, you know, this fish god. According to, you know, one of the notes that I read here is that Dagon was actually a Philistine god of kind of nature. 
and previously it was a god of the Canaanites. Wait, so Dagon Dagon's is a real thing. Well, you know, it's a real a myth. It's a, okay. you know, Lovecraft didn't come up with the name okay. Dagon. He, he took it from an older myth and kind okay. of made it into something different. But in Semitic, there's another word, which is Dagon. Different, not, not the same thing, which means fish of sadness. <laughs> and <laughs> Isn't that a Sade song? It, it, it is a Sade oh, It should be. Fish of sadness. Give me the fish of sadness. It's pretty. It's pretty good, Shadé, dude. <laughs> it's pretty good. <laughs> so lame. Uh, no, it was great. All right. Um, well, wait a minute. So Dagon, you said that it was this Dagon, and it made me immediately think of head on that that stuff that you put on your forehead when you have a headache. <laughs> I don't know why. Well, I know why. It sounds like it. And it just I was thinking, what's the inf- what would that infomercial be like? Dagon. Uh, uh, anyway. You know, I did see a good infomercial on the Elder Sign that somebody made. Oh, really? Yeah, if you go online, um, we'll put it in the show notes. Uh, there's this fake um, ad for, for Elder Signs. All these, these people saying, you know, I'm having a problem with creepy creatures from other worlds. What should I do? And then this guy in a lab coat comes in like he's a doctor, and he says, "You should use Elder Sign." Oh, I gotta see that. Yeah, you haven't seen. You gotta check uh, it out. Elder Sign is something that Lovecraft created. It's just some sort of ward or symbol. That yes, will keep bad things away. Yeah, yeah. Sorry about um, that. That's something we'll talk about when he actually mentions it. Yeah. Uh, well, anyway, so uh, so this uh, he tell the our protagonist tells some folks about it. Nobody believes him. Yes, he becomes addicted to morphine, and. Because that eases the only thing that eases is pain. Yeah. He has nightmares all the time, so all he does is think about this this creature that he saw. And then right at the end of the story, he's writing and he goes, I cannot think of the deep sea without shuddering at the nameless things that may at this very moment be crawling and floundering on its slimy bed, worshipping their ancient stone idols and carving their own detestable likenesses on submarine obelisks of water-soaked granite. I dream of a day when they may rise above the billows to drag down in their reeking talons the remnants of puny, war-exhausted mankind. Of a day when the land shall sink and the dark ocean floor shall ascend amidst universal pandemonium. The end is near. I hear a noise at the door, as of some immense, slippery body lumbering against it, which shall not find me. God, that hand. The window. The window. Freaking creepy stuff. That's actually, and that's the end of the story. That's the end of the story. That actually is not the original ending of the story. It's not the original? No, I found. I I did not know that. Uh, No, so it's weird because in the end of the last line, he says the window twice. Uh And it's because they struck out... uh, They struck out a sentence. the The original last sentence said, God, that hand. The window. Ouch. The glass. Oh, God, my ankle. The lawn. The window. I'm on the first floor. <laughs> and then that last line's in italics because that was the twist. The jump, the jump didn't work. And now that's bullshit. I just wrote that. One. I thought it'd be funny if he just kept continuing. The window. Oh, God, the pigeons. Oh, the plummeting. Sorry. Uh, I was trying to trick you. You did. You were tricking me. No, I for actually don't a know. Split second. <laughs> I don't know the history of the story at all, but maybe you. Oh uh, well, I do know about this. This story was written in July of 1917, uh, a month after uh, the tomb. It was published in November 1919 in the Vagrant First, and then later again October 1923 in Weird Tales. 
Cool. And well, what, what drove him to write this? What drove him? A dream, my friend. Oh, my goodness. Chad, it was a dream. <laughs> How this comes out that it was in a dream is uh, he writes this little thing, uh, this, I don't know, an essay? I don't know if it's the appropriate word for it, but mm-hmm. it's called In the Defense of Dagon. And he wrote that in 1921, where a critic was talking about, hey, if he's stuck in this ooze, how does he get out of it? You know, like, how does he pull himself out of the boat stuck in it? He can't st- stuck out of it. So this Lovecraft. Is a very good question. So love, this is what Lovecraft writes here. I'm, I'm, this is a direct quote. The hero slash victim. Uh, that is, I think that's a great thing to call the hero slash victim. Yeah, I think that's great for all of his stories, isn't it? Yeah. The yeah. hero slash victim. Hero slash victim. Anyway, we'll have to keep using that. The hero slash victim is half sucked into the mire, yet he does crawl. He pulls himself along in the detestable ooze, tenaciously though it cling to him. I know, for I dream the whole hideous crawl, and yet feel the ooze sucking me down. So he actually had this dream where he was in this ooze and the boat and the ocean, and I have to, I have to say that's a weak defense. Yeah, it's a really weak defense. To say yeah. I know it happened that way because I dreamed. <laughs> It doesn't make it logically make any sense, necessarily. Not at all. It's like, I know you cheated on me. I dreamt about it. It's like, yeah, you can fly on hot dogs because I had a dream that I was flying on a giant hot dog. You've had that that dream too, right? Sure. Uh, Anyway... Uh, you know, Lovecraft what does hated. That represent? He he uh, hated seafood. Did you know that? No, he hated seafood. He hated seafood. He well, no, that makes sense times. because a lot he he does have. Um, I mean, he doesn't like ocean things. No. He's obsessed with them. But I can understand that because I I like I actually like seafood quite a bit. But I do too. I am scared to death of the ocean. And it's pretty creepy. Yeah, it's it's um. I mean, it's full of monsters. Yeah. So. Speaking of that, yeah. uh, there was I was listening to the radio the, the other day, and, and I think it was just a week ago or a week and a half ago, a number of uh, squids, Humboldt squids, washed up on shore in San Diego, just a couple hours away from here. Giant squids? Giant squids. Uh, the Humboldt squid, they're called red devils because they attack humans. They're oh, mostly shit. down in Mexico, but they have razor-sharp beaks, toothy tentacles. They grow up to 100 pounds. Whoa. And they hunt in schools of up to 1,200 Whoa, 12 They can swim up to 15 miles per hour, and they can skim over the water to escape predators. So they can actually leave the water for a moment. So some people call them flying squids. Anyway, nobody knows why they're there, but there was an earthquake in San Diego the night before they started showing up. So some people thought that it could have disturbed them for some reason and brought them up. Other people think it's global warming, but this has been happening for weeks now. And so there's a lot of scuba divers who are, some, who are scared to death, and they're not going down there. And then some, obviously, who, you know, they want to see these things. Yeah, yeah, So yeah. I read this SciTech Today article just the other, uh, the other day. Can we put a link to that in our show notes? Yes, we can certainly put a link to that in our show notes. The writer was named Jillian Flaccus, and I really liked this couple of paragraphs because they scared me. So this was the account of one of the uh-huh. scuba divers who went down there. Said, uh, one especially large squid suspended itself motionless in the water about three feet a meter away and peered at the diver closely, its eyes rolling before it vanished into the black. A shimmering incandescence rippled along its body, almost as if it were communicating through its skin. But the next night, things were different. A large squid surprised the diver by hitting her from behind and grabbing at her with its arms, pulling her sideways in the water. The powerful creature ripped her buoyancy hose away from her chest and knocked away her light. When she recovered, she didn't know which direction was up, and at first couldn't find the hose to help her stay afloat as she surfaced. The squid was gone. That is some freaky stuff. I know. It's the same kind of situation. There's some kind of uh, meteorological event 
that causes these things to come to the surface. And now there's very real danger to humans off the coast of San Diego because some of these things will grab you. They're just curious. Right. And they, they feel and they smell through their tentacles. So they'll uh -huh. grab you to see if you're edible. And they might just pull you way down. Whoa. Anyway. Wait, so are you trying to tell me what I think you're trying to tell me? That this is real? This is, that, that everything that H.P. Lovecraft ever wrote is true? <laughs> you are so perceptive. How did you read between the lines? <laughs> Uh, yes, no. I, I think that that is an interesting phenomenon and extremely terrifying. <laughs> <laughs> it is. It really it, is. It really is. Wait, what, so what did you, what did you think of the story? Like, just generally, what's your In opinion? general, you know what, I liked it. Um, I thought that some of the stuff in it was a little clunky, but I did get some pretty, uh, there's some good visceral stuff in there, and I yeah. think there's a couple of examples of great writing in it. I, I I agree. I agree with that. When I first read it, I thought the story sucked. Honestly, really? I just I was like, "That's it." He basically lands on this island, sees a creepy thing, runs away, goes crazy. The end. It's re there's not much to this. Mm -hmm. The second time I read it, I really paid attention to the writing, the paintings he was creating with you know with his prose, mm -hmm. and they're really cool images and and really evocative. And that is really what makes in my opinion lovecraft really great i really thought about it and really pictured it you know just this 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 island or this undulating mire of blackness with these bones sticking out of it and this and it's during the day because when i first read it i thought it was all night like I, you know just how you skip words but when i read it and he said it was in the when the day and the sun made it it was extra creepy that it was during the day for some reason hmm. and it, just because it maybe it wasn't what i was expecting and yeah, I really, I really like this story, and I, I, I take back my first uh, initial in, instinct that was that I thought it sucked because it doesn't suck. It's short; it's five pages long. So you know, I mean, how many twists and turns True. are there really going to be in there? And it definitely, I mean, to me, it has, it had a, um, well, it, 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 it articulated a pretty specific concept, and it's not necessarily to me about what happened or what he saw out there, and more about the fact that when you see something horrible, you can't unsee it, right? Yeah. And it can haunt you for the rest of your life. Absolutely. One thing that I thought about, especially when he's um, at the end, when he's saying that he can hear the thing at the door, and every time he closes his eyes, he sees it. You know, mm -hmm. uh, when I saw somebody pre-internet, you know, occasionally you come across a videotape you know oh, that right, somebody yes. would have and it would have something you know i had all these friends where people would just put together compilations and send them to each other of different of really screwed, screwed up, up things, things right yeah. most of the time it's pornographic so most of that some of it disturbed me i'm not going to get into it here but one yeah. thing somebody had was the uh the video from the 80s of that uh representative who shot himself in the head bud dwyer do you yeah. know what i'm talking about mm -hmm. um he did it at a uh at a press, press conference. conference yeah yeah right and and i I had heard the audio from it, I remember, at the news, but I'd never seen it before. Yeah. And sh we're, you know, I must have seen Commando <laughs> or The oh, Terminator. Right, yeah. I mean, you just weaned on this fake violence. And right. when you see a real person lose their life on screen. Yeah, it's it's pretty disturbing. And I couldn't, every time I shut my eyes for weeks after that, all I could see was the blood streaming from that guy's nose, yeah. you know. And I know that, actually, I'm sure a lot of people right now are haunted from a similar image of that woman in Iran who was shot right uh, on the street because that was... Well, it may con obviously it concerns me about YouTube. <laughs> yeah, no. Or, or there was the uh, the the military guy who um, I I don't remember if it was in retaliation for Abu Ghraib, but the contractor I'm sorry, it wasn't the military guy. It was a contractor that was, was captured and beheaded. Yeah. And and my sister watched that. I knew better than to go watch that. Right. Yeah. But she was she couldn't get it out of her head. Yeah. 
it's it, yeah it's it's horrific uh i remember seeing the 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 vietnam video where the guy executes the other guy mm-hmm. and there was another footage of a young girl like a little girl uh was hit by napalm and she was running down the street <sighs> naked and her her skin was like falling off as she was running and like i can't ever unsee that and to me that in this story in its setting i mean i think that it was probably writing something in 1917 i mean that's what was going on yeah right but um people were coming home from this war with you know where there were new things going on there was chemical warfare there was new weaponry people were being blown apart and and hurt in new and different ways and coming home also there were advances in medicine that could keep these people alive longer on the battlefield and at home so you had these soldiers coming home with no noses no ears no arms uh, horrible chemical burns. I mean, there were literally these poor guys, these monsters coming home. Yeah, know? and people, and and that must have been in the in the air when he wrote it, and uh, and even in the end when he says that he's afraid that these monsters are going to come up from the ocean and we're going to be so tired of fighting, mm-hmm. we're not going to be able to defeat them. Right. It's it's almost like he's in a metaphorical sense saying that our own base, ugly, hideous prehistoric nature is going to continue to bubble up if we keep at this Mm -hmm. and we're just going to be naked apes beating the shit out of each other on the street you know yeah i mean this obviously comes from world war one lovecraft wrote a poem called the crime of crimes about the lusitania where 1200 people died after being uh, hit by a german you know they were sunk by a german uh, submarine and Lovecraft, he wrote this poem condemning this act because he thought it was, you know, terrible. And then, you know, he was, as I think everybody at the time, was obviously really affected by the war. Yeah. I don't like reference-laden text. Yes. Because it means I got to know stuff. Right. And I I am fairly educated, but I'm also very lazy, and I want to be immersed in the story. And when he says, you know, I mean, it's all over the place. He mentions Poe and Bulwer in the same sentence. Yeah. Grotesque beyond the imagination of a Poe or a Bulwer. They were damnably human in general outline, despite webbed hands and feet, shockingly wide and flabby lips, glassy, bulging eyes, and other features less pleasant to recall. So I know who Poe is, but I don't know who Bull? Uh, Edward George Bulwer Lighton was a he was a writer uh, in the nineteenth century and, and at the time he was really popular. He was a very popular writer, and he uh-huh. wrote about science fiction and horror. I mean he was He's writing stuff that Lovecraft would have very much so have liked, right. but he was notoriously flowery. Mm-hmm. Um, it was a dark and stormy night. Is the way that he started his book, uh, Paul Clifford, was the name right. of the book. And that's that, to this day, they have a contest every year called the uh, annual Bulwer Lighton Fiction Contest in which people write bad intros to novels. Uh-huh. You know? And I thought it was funny because the sentence he mentions a man is like my least favorite sentence in the entire story. I think it's <laughs> kind of badly written. Uh, Gustav Dory, another 19th century reference, and that guy's a uh, an illustrator for a lot of fiction. I had to look him up. Oh right, yeah. Well, there's I looked up uh, well Cyclopean, which I Lovecraft uses a lot, and I mm-hmm. I didn't really I had a, like a feeling what it was. But you know, it's big. It's big. Yeah. But what does that mean exactly? Yeah, I, I've looked it up. It is a style of masonry that uses really big stones. Uh, so as if made by like a giant person. So uh, which that's the it. Cyclops was a yeah were was it was a were were giant size. They were like I don't know twenty feet tall I think. And there in the Odyssey there was and that was another one he ref, um, yeah he references Polyphemus yes who is the name of the Cyclops in the Odyssey mm. and Polyphemus that's one of my favorite stories in the Odyssey and not that we have any more time to talk about this but 
that's the Cyclops who he... It's great that he references the Odyssey. Yeah. Because it's a similar thing where they were adrift at sea. They stop on this island and Flipsmith is the Cyclops who traps all of uh, Ulysses' guys in a cave and starts right. eating them. Yep. And then Ulysses gets him drunk mm-hmm. and uh, they put his eye out. It's yes. pretty horrible. But before they do that, he, he, he when he asks Odysseus what his name is, he says, no man. And so when Polyphemus wakes up and he's blind and he starts running around, he tells everybody, no man blinded me, no man blinded me, and everybody just thinks he's crazy. Uh-huh. So in that way, he's almost like a Lovecraftian protagonist. <laughs> because the whole, you know, he got drunk and he got blinded and he's talking and raving and nobody's listening to him. You, you mentioned that Dagon was something the Philistines, it was yeah. a fertility god. There's a story in the... I looked at the searchable Bible online. Mm-hmm. Uh, first oh, yeah. time I've ever used that, but I, I plugged in Dagon, and this little story pops up where when the Philistines had the Ark of the Covenant, they took it to Ashdod, and they said, can we keep this in Dagon's temple? Mm-hmm. And the priests were like, yeah, sure, go ahead. So they put it in there, and then the next day they come the in. Temples are good storage facilities. That's a good place to keep something, yeah. 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 So uh, they, <laughs> the next day, Dagon, they, just, they don't say the statue of, but I assume that's what it is. They're uh-huh. like, the next day, Dagon fell over. We went into the temple, and Dagon was on, you know, on his ass. Uh-huh. And, so, and they're like, we can't have the Ark here. And so they're like, Doc, it's not a big deal. That's an accident. Actually, they don't say any of this in the Old Testament. But that's just what I imagine went on. But they're like, they, so they kept it another night. And the next day when they came in, its arms and legs and head were all broken off. And they were across the threshold. Yeah. And they were like, okay, the Ark doesn't like. And also everybody in the village got uh, blinded or they had goiters or something like that, too. I mean, it was bad keeping the Ark there. <laughs> but, the, but the Ark, anyway, the, the temple priests were like, get this Ark out of here. It's ruining my Dagon. <laughs> But it reminded me of Raiders of the Lost Ark because they keep it in that box and it right. burns the swastika off the box. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Wait, so they, there was a swastika in the Bible? No, but the Ark, if you put it somewhere and there's some ornery stuff around, it'll oh, screw see. up the ornery I stuff. See. I see what you're saying now. Or, you know, I was going to say, I thought that the, the whole Nazi thing was much later than the Bible. <laughs> uh, yes, it is. Right? It is. Speaking of movies, there is a, a movie called, called Dagon. Yes, but uh, the movie's actually an ad- adaptation of uh, Shadow of Orion's Moth. So, which is another Lovecraft story yes. that deals with fishy stuff. Yeah, we'll and... talk about some other time. Yes, yes, that's uh, a whole other podcast. I, but I like that movie. But don't think that it's about the story because it's not. It's not. It'll be very. But that's directed by Stuart Gordon, and I just want to put a plug in. I went to go see. He just directed a show that Jeffrey Combs is in, and it's uh, Jeffrey Combs playing Edgar Allan Poe. Uh-huh. And, uh huh. And it was great. Oh, Jeffrey wow. Combs really, really inhabited the character. And the neat thing about it is that they took it. Poe used to read his own material. That's basically how he made his money in the last couple of years of his life. Huh. So they actually have these. Nothing was in the show that Poe didn't actually say. And oh, wow. then they took these secondhand accounts of people who were at those performances. And we're talking about how he would get drunker and drunker as he was reading and offend people. And he, you know, uh, he hated a lot of other writers like Longfellow. And he'd just go off on these rants about how much they sucked. And wow. So the, the play is that. It's as if you're in one of those readings, and um, it's amazing. And uh, Stewart directed it. Dennis Paoli, who was the, his co-writer on Reanimator, uh-huh. right? It was the whole crew that did those Lovecraft movies did this little show. Oh wow! So it's playing now at the Center for Inquiry in Hollywood, but um, I think they're going to tour it. Oh wow, that'd be great. Wait, is it still playing? Uh, it's currently playing at the Steve Allen Theater, which right. is at the Center for Inquiry on in Friday Hollywood. nights. It's on. Uh, it's every weekend okay. through July, I think. Right. Now. Perhaps we should put that in our show notes. Yes, that should also go in the show. Okay, notes. great. I'm just going to read some of these things. He wakes up and he discovers that he's on a slimy expanse of hellish black mire. Yes. And then in the next paragraph he says, Though one might well imagine that my first sensation would be of wonder at so prodigious and unexpected a transformation <laughs> of scenery, 
I was in reality more horrified. Well, no. No human being would imagine that your first instinct would be wonder. Yeah. It would be nonstop pants crap. Yeah, it would It would be pure, unadulterated terror. Yeah. I just, who does he think other, what does he think other people are like? Yeah, like, I'm going to wake up in the morning, I'm half in mire and just go, whoa, this is beautiful. <laughs> Look at this. It smells like dead fish That's and there's so bones unexpected. i totally didn't expect that this morning oh, at all so prodigious yeah uh <laughs> also right after that he says um the region was putrid with the carcasses of de decaying fish and of other less describable things which i saw protruding from the nasty mud of the unending plane and we last podcast we talked about his nondescript you know yeah it yeah. must not be it seems like this is down the scale somewhere like Really horrible things must not be named, uh -huh. and there's things that should not be named, <laughs> and then there's this, which is just, it's less describable. Yeah, it's... <laughs> you can kind of hint at what it is, but... Well, I mean, this, that part didn't seem particularly creepy to me, when he just says less describable, isn't he just couldn't figure out what the hell it was. Yeah. Like, I don't think it was something as in, like, it's freaking me out, it's just like, I don't know what the hell's sticking out of the... that. What is that? Is that a backbone? Is that a head? <laughs> yeah, which is cool. Yeah. And I know he did it on purpose, but at the same time, I was kind of like, that's lazy, dude. Oh. You full on just told me it was less described. You make a stab at it or don't include it. All right. <laughs> this is me. Um, you, you made reference to this earlier. Um, we said no, uh, there were dead things all in the mire. Yes. And stuff. My favorite sentence in the entire story is just the one sentence that's set off as its own paragraph. Nor were there any sea fowl to prey upon the dead things. I like that too. So creepy. Yeah. And it and it's it's so sparse and it just drops it there and it yeah. it creates an effect, even though it doesn't say anything particularly horrifying. Uh-huh. Just that it was still. And in the way that that sentence lays there on the page away from everything else, I mean really conveys it. Yeah, no no, it's 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 great. It's great. Uh oh this was a line that I liked. Uh it's, it's pretty short here. The sun was blazing down from a sky which seemed to me almost black in its cloudless cruelty, as though reflecting the inky marsh beneath my feet. Oh, yeah, I like that one. That a was a good too. one, yeah. When I said, you know, I, when I first read it, you know, I just I read it too quickly, I thought it was night. The fact that it, the, it was day and the sky was, you know, so solid a blue and almost dark, like yeah. it was almost like black. Yeah, I, I thought that was a great. Sentence. Yeah, it really it made my brain kind of work and paint this picture that I cannot fully describe. <laughs> of my frantic ascent of the slope and cliff and of my delirious journey back to the stranded boat, I remember little. I believe I sang a great deal and laughed oddly when I was unable to sing. <laughs> that, that's awesome. I love it. I love What's it. he singing? I don't know. Well, that's great. I mean, uh, you really, I just imagine him like, ha, ha, ha. maybe he was singing that Sade song that I came up with. <laughs> oh, yes. Because I felt a little crazy when that was going on. In the end, when he says, uh, now I am to end it all having written a full account for the information or the contemptuous amusement of my fellow man, yeah. I thought, that's a little letter to us. <laughs> Because we are enjoying this story to an extent with some contemptuous amusement. There is definitely some contemptuous amusement going on here. It was great. I was like, Lovecraft just... I mean, he just spoke to me. Man. He did. The yeah. dead speak. It's true. Oh. We got some feedback. Can you yeah, we it? did. Chad, I can't believe that people are actually listening to our podcast. You know, we got a note from... We made a reference in the... Um, oh, to Tour de Lovecraft by yeah. Kenneth Height. And... Kenneth Height uh, wrote a little uh, little blurb on our site, uh, which I guess uh, 
Chad will read right now. What? I will? Oh, yeah, so he said, thanks for the tour to Lovecraft Plug, guys. Uh, we'll have to agree to disagree about the tomb, which he didn't like it very much. Yeah, well. no, he didn't like it. Uh, but you'll be glad to know that HPL did, in fact, see nymphs and dryads when he was a kid. <laughs> <laughs> or so he claimed in his confession of unfaith, and I love that he says nymphs too. Yeah, you were dogging I was on so me mad because he said just dryads. But no, it's nymphs too. <laughs> no, and I was saying nymphs. And oh, you were, you saying, were saying it was nymphs. just dryads. It's just dryads. Yes. Uh, you want me to read the? Yeah, yeah, read the. It's so, a, it's a uh, good little. Uh... So he actually gave us um, a quote. When about seven or eight, I was a genuine pagan, so intoxicated with the beauty of Greece that I acquired a belief in the old gods and nature spirits. I have, in literal truth, built altars to Pan, Apollo, and Athena and have watched for dryads and satyrs in the woods and fields at dusk. He didn't say nymphs, did he? No, he didn't. I think, I think that Kenneth was just trying to be kind to me when he wrote that in there. <laughs> uh, but other than that, um, you, know, uh, you know, thanks for all the great feedback from everybody. Uh, and uh, is we there have, anything else, Chad? Anything else that you have? No, I, I, I'm, I think we've nailed Dagon. We did an hour on it, to tell you the truth. <laughs> we nailed Dagon. So that's all I've got. That's all I have. Uh, next week, we are doing the story of Polaris. Polaris? Which I've never read. Yeah, I don't even know what that's about. No, I don't. It's just right here on the list. So, um, What do you think? What do you speculate? Polaris is a star, I believe. Right. Uh, so I'm guessing it probably has to do with a giant cougar. Yeah. Okay. I was thinking the same thing, man. All right. Well, all right. Well, we'll be here next week talking about giant cougars. Giant cougars in the, well, or, or the story Polaris would, you know, and probably both, actually. Uh, I'm Chris Lackey. I'm Chad Pfeiffer. And this is the HP Lovecraft Literary Podcast. We're here at hppodcraft.com. Thanks for listening. hppodcraft.com. Ah!